if you had to pinpoint a moment in your life that was the one that was filled with the most joy, what would it be? Many people would probably look back and, and at the top of that list might be the day of a wedding, the birth of a child or, or children. Maybe if you've taken some life-changing mission trip or traveled somewhere that was unforgettable, that experience would, would top the list. A sports nut might say uh, that time of the undefeated or nearly perfect season that ended in a championship was one that was filled with joy. Whatever event or experience that, that comes to mind when you think about that kind of joy, the next question would be, when you reflect on it or remember it today, does it today fill you with the same level of joy as when you first experienced it? My guess is the answer is, is no. It's one thing to remember an occasion that was joy. That's quite a different thing than experiencing that joy, isn't it? Because generally the trend is that over time, joy fades or eventually is replaced by something else. That's kind of how it is and it is going to be when, when we talk about the world's joy or temporal joy. This morning is the perfect Sunday to talk about joy. Historically, the church had a label, a title for this Sunday. It was called and is still called today Gaudete Sunday when it was the tradition to name a Latin title for each Sunday of the church year, Gaudete means rejoice. And it's the Sunday that we light the pink candle on the Advent wreath, the joy candle, because, as I had mentioned earlier, the season of Advent now shifts from our anticipation of Jesus' return, his second coming, to preparing to celebrate his first coming. And how, what better occasion to mark that than with with joy in our hearts. I recently came across a, a definition from a, a fellow pastor and, and author for joy that has grown on me the more that I have reflected on it. And he defines joy as a happiness that is not based on happenings. And what I love about that definition is it eliminates the present or current circumstance or situation from consideration. Your happiness, your joy, when we talk about it in a biblical sense, is not based on what's going on in your life right now. And you've lived long enough to know that life has plenty of ups and downs. So if our joy is only going to be based on when things are going well for us, we shouldn't be surprised that it's rather elusive in our lives. But to the Christian, regardless of our circumstances, even in the midst of sorrow, sadness, loss, we can still experience joy. How and why can that be? Well, that's really what Isaiah is going to explain for us this morning as we dig into those verses a little bit. When you think of a worldly joy and the experiences that we have, one of the, the things that, that can fill us with joy or captivate us are a number of natural occurrences that we see in the created world that God has given to us. You've been in a, a national park and you've gone through a, an arduous, a rather strenuous hike, 
all for the purpose of seeing a, a glorious waterfall at the end of it. You know what it's like to arrive there and see that waterfall in all its majesty, and you are captivated by it. You can't look away. You've had the privilege of, of being in Joshua Tree in the evening or some other place that has minimal light pollution where you look up in a dark night sky and you see the stars are littering the heavens just all over the place in all their glory. Or this past week, past couple of days, the sunrise in the morning, you see those visions, those sights, and they are captivating. We are drawn to them and we can't look away. And it isn't just the, the natural aspects of God's creation. We see this sometimes in people, especially those that are at the top of their field, performing at a, at a high level that sets them apart from anybody else to see the most skilled dancer glide across the stage gracefully, effortlessly. To see a, a magician perform his craft in a way that he performs a, a trick and leaves everybody absolutely astonished and mesmerized at, at his inexplicable trick. Or a comedian who, who nails his set in a way that is a, a once-in-a-lifetime performance, like a, a band who gives a life once-in-a-lifetime performance, to see those, those individuals perform at the top of their game, to see maybe the performance of a lifetime is to be absolutely captivated by them. Nothing else is going to distract you when you have the privilege of seeing something like that. When we hear these words of Isaiah, which are really the words of Jesus, as Jesus makes known to us in the Gospels, he, in fact, reads these very words from Isaiah while he was teaching in the synagogue, and says, explains to his readers, I'm the fulfillment of these prophecies. In other words, we really hear Jesus speaking through the pen of, of Isaiah here. And as we do, as he explains why he was going to come into this world, how are we anything but absolutely captivated by Christ? As he spells out everything that he has come into this world to do, when you think about it, is there anybody that that is greater at his work than him? Is there anybody that is, is higher or more proficient in that, that field of saving than our Savior? Of course not. So we are captivated by Christ as, as he spells out for us these details. And what exactly is it that, that Jesus came into this world to do? Here again, those first three verses explain to us, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. As you hear these verses, there is really something for everybody here. It applies to, to all of us. When we consider this work of Christ, we are captivated by what he came to do, to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, what are the poor but those who have nothing to their name? And Jesus, in these words, is not speaking physically, not literally, but it's a spiritual picture of what he came to bring to us. We who are poor know that we have nothing to offer, nothing to negotiate with God, nothing to bring to the bargaining table in hopes of our salvation or a right relationship with him. We are absolutely poor. We have nothing to our name to bring. And yet, Jesus says, I came to bring good news to you who are poor. 
And perhaps nobody captures that, that thought or reflects it as well as the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Good news for you who are poor, Jesus came to make you rich. And as we live in this world that is covered by sin's fingerprints, can't we also relate to what he says next? Bind up the brokenhearted. Every one of us here knows all too well the feeling of heartbreak. Being on the receiving end of the devastation of sin. Some more troubling than others. Some of us have experienced sexual abuse or assault. Others have been on the receiving end of slanderous accusations tarnishing our reputation. Others have been betrayed, experienced infidelity. We've gone through trauma. We've experienced grievous loss. And to those brokenhearted, Jesus says, I've come to bind you up. Not as an afterthought. Not as if Jesus came in to do something else. And, and when he has some time, he might also bind up the brokenhearted. But that was and is the reason that he came into this world. To bind up the brokenhearted. And to we who live in this world that is covered by sin's fingerprints, what a sad reminder that all too often those fingerprints of sin are our own. Because we aren't only on the receiving end of sin's devastation, we also confess that we are the cause of it. That others have experienced that grief and trauma and devastation of sin at our hand. We have been guilty of it. That's really what Isaiah is speaking of when he refers to us being captive and, and prisoners. He says, before Christ came into the world, before we were brought to faith, that's all we knew. We were captive to sin. We were prisoners of it. We had no other choice, nor did we have any desire to do the right thing. By nature, all we could do is sin. We're captive to it and to the leader of it, Satan himself. And to that, Jesus says, to those prisoners, to those who are locked up and captive, Jesus says, I have come to proclaim freedom. I have come to set you free, to give you release. You are no longer burdened and bound by sin and its guilt and its condemnation. To those of us living, we hear of another friend who's diagnosed with cancer. We hear of another loss. And all of this weighs down on our hearts and minds in a way that nobody else in any civilization and in, in any period of history has ever been inundated with the degree of sorrow and grief and mourning that fills our screens and our hearts and our minds each and every day. And yet to those of us who are grieving, even when it doesn't directly affect us and we are sitting in, in our pool of tears, Jesus promises, says, I've come to comfort and provide, which is exactly what he has done. We consider all of this work that Isaiah spells out for us, and how can we be anything but absolutely captivated by Christ, the work that he came to carry out on our behalf. And that's even the end of the story as Isaiah goes on, now shifting not just from the words of Jesus, but really to the response of the believer, the impact 
when we consider what Jesus has done, that's the last couple of verses that we read in our text this morning from 61. Not only are we captivated by Christ, we are also clothed with Christ. Isaiah writes, and Jesus really, uh, this is the response of, of Jesus. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You are clothed with Christ and dear friends, you have never, nor could you ever look better. We consider those, those terms, the garments of salvation. And there is not a Sunday that goes by that you don't hear the word or sing the word salvation. And it's easy for us to, to overlook its significance and what it actually means when we speak of salvation, that we are saved. Ask, ask the police officer who, who goes out for another shift if he feels more safe, more secure when he is wearing his bulletproof vest than when he goes without it. Quite literally, in a non-theological sense, that bulletproof vest could be his salvation. It could be the thing that saves him from a, a bullet that would end his life. He's wearing that which would save him. And, and Jesus promises, because of what he came to do, you too are wearing, you are dressed with that garment of salvation. Something much greater than just to protect you from physical harm or the end of your life here, but a salvation that lasts into eternity. A salvation that says, though you couldn't pay the price, I did. Though you couldn't do anything to forgive your sins, I did. Though you could never in any way ascribe, write your name, inscribe your name in the book of life, I have. And now I dress you with that beautiful garment of salvation. And not only the garment of salvation, but the robe of righteousness as well. How often in just a day, let alone the course of a week, or a month, do you find yourself second-guessing, looking back at how you handled things, wondering, did you say the right thing? Did you handle that in the right way? Did you deal with that interaction at, at work in, in the right way? And we're constantly second-guessing, questioning, wondering, did I do it the right way? guess what? It doesn't matter really what the answer does, is in terms of your salvation because Jesus says that you are, are dressed with his robe of righteousness. You are dressed with his rightness. And on a much grander scale than, than just disciplining your children the right way or dealing in your marriage the right way or interacting with others the right way. But most importantly, in the right way with our relationship with God, Jesus did all the right things that we never could. He kept the law perfectly. He was our righteousness and is our righteousness so that we are free from, from being bound to the law. We don't have to measure up to that perfection. Jesus says, I'm your righteousness and I am clothing you with my righteousness, my perfection, my obedience. And it's hard for us as Christians when we consider being dressed with the garment of salvation or the robe of righteousness to not consider our baptism. That's really the picture that, that Paul painted for us elsewhere, not just in Corinthians, but Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, reminds us, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When Jesus brought you into his family at baptism, 
That's when he placed that robe of righteousness, that garment of salvation that is yours for eternity, that no one can ever take away from you, that cannot be undone. You've never looked better. You don't need to keep running back to the, the closet of your own works righteousness to, to try and, and find another outfit that might please God. You don't have to hope that somehow you could earn enough favor to, to be dressed with something new from the finest store. You have the best attire possible as you are dressed with a garment of salvation and the robe of Christ's righteousness. So what does all of this mean for us as we are captivated by Christ, as we are clothed with Christ? It fills us with joy. That's the picture that Isaiah had in the first part of verse 10, chapter 61, when he said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And that word delight is actually in the original, the same word repeated twice. It's a word that would probably better be translated joy, but I think the, the translators wanted to avoid joy heaping upon joy, even though that's what it was in the Hebrew. It's in a sense saying, I rejoice with great joy, or I rejoice greatly. My soul rejoices in my God. And that second word, it's a different word in the original, but it could be taken to mean exalt or celebrate my God. So either way you look at it, the whole point is this, whole pile of joy that God has placed into our lives. And, and how do we do that as believers? How do we do exactly what Isaiah says there? Delight greatly in the Lord, rejoice in my God. I don't know if that's anything that you ever were trained or taught to do. You read the phrase, you come across it in the Psalms, you have it here in Isaiah. What does it mean for the child of God to delight in the Lord, to rejoice in him? Well, it doesn't happen accidentally. And, and I think probably where we're a little confused on it in this culture, especially today, is that we feel as if this should be driven by an emotion or a feeling. And we say, well, I don't feel the joy, so I don't know what it means to delight in the joy of the Lord. I'm just not feeling it today. Well, that's the problem. You're not feeling it because you're not first thinking it and focusing on it. If you aren't deliberate, if you aren't intentional, if you if you don't focus and make it a priority or plan to delight in the Lord, it's not going to just happen. It happens when we reflect and focus on the very things we're doing right now. In fact, you could do worse than go back to these first three verses of Isaiah 61 and just reflect and ponder on the joy in the Lord that you have because God kept his promise in these verses and sent you Jesus. The delight in the Lord is to crowd out the worry, the anxiety, and replace it with a very fixed and focused thought on your good and your gracious God, his wonderful, abundant promises to you. That's how we delight in him. That's how we rejoice in him. When we shut out the world and give our hearts and our minds undivided time and attention reflect on how good and gracious Jesus is. Dear friends, as as you seek to, to capture that joy this week and, and next week during the season of Christmas, there is reason to rejoice because your joy is not a happiness based on happenings. Your joy is based on something much greater, someone much greater. Your joy is based in Jesus. And to the degree that we reflect and continue pondering in the joy that we have in Jesus, it will be a perfect joy. 
because you have a perfect Jesus. May God bless you with that joy this season and always. Amen.